This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Tom Frank on the Trump re-election scenario. It's a nightmare, but it could come true. Also, Robert Mueller's questions in Donald Trump's possible answers. Bob Dreyfus will comment. First up, Harold Meyerson on full employment. Trump Watch starts right now. All of a sudden, full employment is back on the liberal agenda after years of neglect. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page and other publications. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, you write in the prospect that full employment has emerged from what you call the Museum of Dead Causes. Uh, what we're talking about here is a, a new job guarantee that would seek to eliminate involuntary unemployment. It would directly create jobs in communities where they're needed. It would mean some kind of a public employee program that would offer a job at a living wage to everyone who is ready and willing to work. It would be federally funded, out of taxes, but would have presumably some kind of decentralized administration. It would pay $15 an hour and offer a basic package of benefits. My, my first thought is, great, let's do it. Um, well, or, or, or some variant thereof. Yes, so those various conditions. So let's, let, there's a lot of questions along the way here. Um, first of all, how many jobs do we need? Well, I mean, that's not clear. Uh, for one thing, uh, the labor force participation rate in the United States uh, has uh, declined uh, so that uh, even in, among uh, prime-age males, which is the, the group that usually has the highest level of labor force participation, it's uh, dropped from, well, actually in the 1950s, from the 90s, uh, down to the 60s uh, in percentile. So, it, it, you know, there's, uh, it, it's not clear, but I mean, I, I venture to say it would be north of 10 million. North of 10 million jobs. And, and what would these jobs be? Would this be leaf raking and picking up trash along the freeways? Well, it would depend. Uh, you know, uh, the, the government actually has uh, in the past, a, a, a very impressive history, not of uh, consciously following a full employment program, though uh, people like Franklin Roosevelt officially have proposed that, uh, but of creating jobs in emergency situations, most notably during the hit of the Great Depression, when Roosevelt's uh, welfare administrator, Harry Hopkins, uh, became uh, Roosevelt's emergency jobs administrator, and in a nation of about 130 million people, was able to put four million people to work in just two months, which sounds almost, you know, inconceivable today. Yes, uh, but was was done then. Now, on the on the one hand, uh, they weren't leaf raking, but they, you know, weren't doing tasks that didn't require any notably special skill, uh, pick and shovel work in particular. On the other hand, they built a heck of a lot of post offices, airports, uh, libraries schools, uh, a, a lot of roads, and uh, uh, even some bridges. Uh, the uh, 
uh, more involved construction projects done uh, funded by the public government during the Depression were not under Hopkins' uh, uh, aegis. Uh, they, they required more skill, and uh, that, was, uh, that was used for you know, major projects like the Boulder Dam, for instance. Uh, the, the big puzzle to me about this whole subject is where it has come from. Uh, um, I re- Bernie Sanders did not did talk about a fifteen dollar minimum wage during the campaign, but he never talked about full employment. Although it seems like a very Bernieish uh, idea. Where why has this emerged uh, since to twenty sixteen? Well, I mean, two things. First of all, uh, Bernie now has explicitly, uh, you know, put forth uh, the, the outline, the, really the bare outlines of a program. Uh, but in this, he was following by a, a, a couple of weeks um, another Democratic senator who is also looking at running for president in 2020, uh, the New York Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, who is not really known for being at the left wing of the Democratic Party. <laughs> that is for and sure. And it also... And it also followed by a week uh, a proposal that uh, from a New Jersey uh, Democratic Senator Cory Booker, who uh, is also not considered on the left wing of the Democratic Party, to you know more immediately set up 15 pilot programs in depressed urban and rural communities. So all of a sudden, this is just sort of coming out of the woodwork, and and the question is why. And there's a whole historic pattern of when it is that this, this issue rises to the surface. Right now, I think it's rising to the surface because, among other things, even though official unemployment uh, is uh, historically low, it's at 4.1 percent, it's sort of been there for a number of months now, uh, it's yet to affect wages. It's yet to affect incomes. Uh, it clearly has to go lower because the old economic rules, uh, which were set at a time when workers actually had some bargaining power, uh, don't really work anymore. So it has to go lower, A. B, there are still, you know, as Cory Booker's proposal indicates, there are still uh, significantly depressed areas of the country, be they inner cities or abandoned rust belts or abandoned rural areas. And so the need for such programs is uh, is very w- real. And it coincides with what is, I think, a generally agreed-upon need to uh, rebuild uh, the American infrastructure in all its ways, shapes, and forms, and uh, an agreed, maybe not so much agreed need, that uh, our human service industry, taking care of uh, kids and seniors, among others, uh, really needs some upgrading and expansion as well. And I would add one other thing, uh, sort of a footnote to your citing the apparently low unemployment rate. A lot of these are bad jobs, which people would be much happier with a better job uh, than the jobs they have now. Right. And uh, if if there were genuinely full employment, that would not only enable people perhaps to switch to a better job, but just give them more bargaining power in their current job, because it would be more obvious that people would be able to switch. Yeah. So the big, uh, you know, reservation coming from the the skeptics and the critics is that this is going to be horribly expensive and we can't uh, afford it. How much would this cost? I know uh, people have been trying to to uh, to figure that out. What what have you read about this? Well, I mean, the estimates are all over the map, and you know, then the you know, it, it, 
but it's offset by reduced uh, Medicaid payments, reduced welfare payments, and increased uh, income tax payments. Uh, so, I mean, there are estimates all over the map going to half a trillion dollars or so. Uh, but I should point out that the uh, uh, Republican Congress and President Trump just signed a tax law that uh, cut mainly corporate taxes and high income taxes by one and a half trillion dollars. So, um, you know, the, the, uh, the weight of the uh, let, let's worry about the deficit argument, uh, is, you know, the people who normally say that pretty much have to shut up for a while because they just enacted uh, a law that greatly expanded the, the deficit only chiefly to benefit the rich. Yeah. Well, the the um, one set of estimates about this that I've seen comes from the Center for American Progress. Uh, they estimate that creating four and a half million jobs that would pay $15 an hour plus contributions to Social Security and Medicare uh, would cost something like $150 billion in the current year, which they point out is about one quarter of Trump's proposed tax cut for the wealthy on an annual basis. So it doesn't right. seem out of sight at all. Right, and, and the, cap, uh, the, cap, uh, the fact that CAP has come out with the program uh, CAP really is sort of the institutional embodiment of the center-left of yeah. the Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, it's the center-left, uh, preeminent center-left think tank in a certain regard. Uh, the fact that they've come out with the program is, is of a piece with uh, uh, Gillibrand and Booker coming out with, uh, with programs. I mean, and, and all of this is reflective of a larger shift uh, to the left within the Democratic Party generally at, at, at most levels of the party. And what do we know about public support for such a job proposal? I mean, recently this would have be call, been called socialism and unacceptable. Well, there's some polls that show uh, public support uh, exceeding 50%. Uh, remember, Americans generally support the idea of, uh, of, of work. And of jobs and of <laughs> yes. employment, yes. Uh, it, it's very easy to stigmatize uh, people on welfare. Uh, that's often simply a shorthand for stigmatizing minorities, uh, even though most of the people on welfare are not minorities. Uh, and uh, you know, we have enough of a residual Puritan ethic in this country that uh, people support jobs programs and work programs. And uh, the, well, the Nation magazine commissioned a poll that uh, t uh, that highlighted some uh, areas where there's very strong support for the job guarantee in their results. Uh, young voters love the job guarantee. A net support, the difference between uh, in favor and opposed, net support of 43% among individuals 18 to 34 Uh and that's support of 22% among 35 to 64. And, of course, massive support among the black voters and, uh, and Latinos. I think this is also happens to be the base of the Democratic Party here. It, it does, and uh, some of those are overlapping categories. Yes. You'll find African Americans and Latinos more heavily uh, represented, the lower you go in the age cohort. So uh there are overlapping factors there but that is the base of the democratic party and i think you will find more and more look 
if it's supported by Bernie, Corey, Booker, and uh, <laughs> Gillibrand, um, I mean, you pretty much got everyone in the party there except Joe Manchin, and I bet you Joe Manchin supports it, too. Yeah, I bet he does. Yeah, I think if Cory Booker is, what, uh, is a Wall Street Democrat, am I uh, wrong about that? Well, he did uh, somewhat disastrously defend uh, Wall Street during the crash of 2008, and he's been uh, uh, either silent or trying to make amends since. (laughs) Uh, But there's no question that that his political rise was funded by a lot of Wall Street money. Uh, But, you know, all of these these folks can read polls and listen to their constituents, and they understand there's been a shift in this country. So, uh, where do we go from here? What what happens next? There's a uh, House and Senate seats uh, races in November. Uh, where is this going to be an issue, and 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 where do we stand politically on it? I would expect to see it an issue uh, where there are contested Democrat uh, contested House and Senate races. I I would think uh, even in states that uh, have a heavy white working class um, uh, composition, like uh, Wisconsin, where Tammy Baldwin is running for the Senate, or Ohio, running for re-election, Ohio, where Sherrod Brown is running for uh, re-election. I would think you'll, uh, you, you'll, you'll see it there, along with some other populist economic positions that, uh, you know, I think command a lot of, a lot of support. I, if I may digress for Please. one second. Tony Baldwin introduced a bill uh, about a week and a half ago that not only limited uh, the ability of corporations to issue share buybacks, but actually uh, called for all publicly traded corporations to have one-third of the directors on their board of directors elected by their workers rather than their shareholders. This sounds, is, this know, sounds like German. Sounds yeah, like Germany. To, to Germans' co-determination, which is a halfway house to social democracy. Yeah. I mean, uh, now, I, it's probably a little too obscure for her to campaign on, but the fact that in a really swing state, she uh, decided to throw this into a bill, uh, uh, almost as a kind of a side, but I'm sure she, you know they did polling and are convinced that, well, it's not going to hurt us. If, if it comes up as an issue, it will help us. Yeah, uh, I think this this reflects uh, growing democratic awareness that um, smart progressive economic populism is a winner, not a loser, uh, in the twenty eighteen elections, and full employment is part of that. So Democrats can campaign on this in twenty eighteen, uh, even if they manage to retake the House and the Senate. Uh, you know, and pass a bill, Trump is going to veto it, and then it's on the agenda for 2020. In the short run, are there prospects for pilot programs, state action, or or other first steps? Uh, I think, well, there's there's not a prospect for federal pilot programs. Uh, And, you know, even the states that are solidly Democratic-controlled and moving left, like California, uh, hey, I haven't seen any. I haven't seen any initiatives so far on this on the state level. It's uh, it might be a bit much for a state to bite off, particularly if a state like California wants to expand Medicaid to undocumented and yeah. and so on and so on. And as the demand for higher education spending quite rightly sweep the nation, uh, I think it's going to be kind of hard on the state level. You might see something here and there, but I think this is. 
really preeminently viewed across the board as a, uh, for those who favor it as a federal responsibility. So, uh, you know, I can see it as an issue in the 2020 election. Uh, I'm not sure we can look forward to many pilot programs at the state level between now and then, however. So it's, a, it's an idea, it's a program, it's something to, to fight for and to draw a line in the sand and to challenge Republicans uh, on. Uh, you, you, you sent me a big uh, uh, a list of different variants of a full employment proposal that different think tanks and gr- groups of economists have put together. Uh, w- are there significant differences here, and and where where are the details? The devil is in the details, but where? Well, I mean, yes, there are some uh, differences between a proposal that my magazine ran a, a sort of dry run article on uh, by uh, uh, Professor Sandy Darity at Duke and uh, uh, Derek Jackson at the New School, which was more like. Uh, Government creates all of these jobs itself. Other of these proposals count on a combination of uh, Federal Reserve commitment to full employment by holding down the interest rates. So, of course, how Democrats persuade the Federal Reserve to do that is a damn good question. Uh, I'm not convinced they can. Um, You know, and and some of it explicitly assumes all those jobs will be government, uh, actually on government projects. Others that it'll be government-funded private stuff, others that it'll be a mix of government-funded, and just because the economy is so much as a result, private sector job creation. Uh, But the idea of a a government guarantee, I mean, clearly goes back to Franklin Roosevelt's 1944 State of the Union Address, which set forth an economic bill of rights. That's kind of the founding document for the modern full employment movement. Uh, You know, and uh, whenever uh, there are significant numbers of, of folks Nervous about the future of the economy is when uh, is when the stuff comes forward. And there's also this issue of decentralized administration, which of course is extremely popular in America. Again, it's a little unclear to imagine how this would work. Uh, can you help us here? Well, I mean, let's go back to the in, uh, example I cited at the beginning uh, when Harry Hopkins was setting up the WPA. He'd uh, run uh, public funds through the 50 states, and those were the days when unemployment was so high across the board that, you know, Republican governors accepted it, uh, quite in uh, contradistinction to today when the federal government says we'll expand Medicaid and Republican governors still say no. Yeah. Uh, and so he ran it through, through the governors and through the city of New York. New York was treated as the, uh, I can't say the 51st state. There were only 48 states. That's the 49th state <laughs> okay. uh, because uh, Roosevelt liked Fiorello LaGuardia, the mayor of New York. But, uh, uh, I mean, that's certainly one way to do it. Uh, you can run it through the states. You can run it through cities. You can run it through uh, any part of the country where unemployment or labor is, is high or labor force participation is low. I mean, there's, there's numerous ways to do it, and I don't think you want to enroll uh, everyone in, in, in one federal employment army. Uh, but, you know, given, given the way uh, the United States is historically structured, I, I think the federal government would make the allotment and uh, uh, it would run through the states. But, you know, if the Republican states say no, there, if, if this is sufficient Democratic support in Congress and the White House to pass this in the first place, there could be sufficient Democratic support to have, say, a federal 
fallback just in case the state, you know, declined to do this. And then I suspect there will be forces in every state that are opposed to this. Yeah, uh, yeah like, like Obamacare. Like, well, yeah, and small businesses opposed to uh, its effect on wage rates. For yeah. uh, it, it really is genuine full employment, which we're still nowhere near. Um, if there really is, wages are going to rise. So there'll be opposition. Harold Meyerson wrote about some alternative scenarios for a full employment program. You can read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch. Next up, Tom Frank on the Trump re-election nightmare scenario. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and streaming at kpfk.org. Later in this hour, Robert Mueller's questions and Donald Trump's answers. Bob Trifus will comment. But first, the Trump re-election nightmare and how we can stop it. Tom Frank has been thinking about that. Of course, he's the author of several books, most recently Listen Liberal, and of course the classic What's the Matter with Kansas. He's been a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's and a contributor to the New York Times and The Nation. Tom, welcome back. John, it's good to be here. You have a description of our president that opens your new essay in Harper's. I wonder if you could read the beginning to us. Okay, so it's, I'm describing... Donald Trump here, and I say he is deeply unpopular, the biggest buffoon any of us have ever seen in the White House. He manages to disgrace the office nearly every single day. He insults our intelligence with his blustering rhetoric. He endorses racial stereotypes and makes common cause with bigots. He has succeeded in offending countless foreign governments. He has no idea what a president is supposed to be or do, and perhaps luckily, he has no clue how to govern. Of the handful of things he has actually managed to achieve, nearly all are toxic. And let me add to that, I'm sure you've heard that Robert Mueller is tightening the news, that Stormy Daniels is going to be hard to stop, that Trump's lawyers are all quitting, and yet you think this horrible president could be reelected and that there is, you say, one clear and undeniable path for Trump to win in 2020, what is the path? Yes, but uh, that's right. I do say that, but I also am thinking of my Chicago school economist here. I have a whole bunch of assumptions <laughs> that you have, have to grant me. Okay. And the, the, the first one is that he doesn't get impeached. Yes. If we take that away, uh, if we take that off the table, and I think there's good reason to believe that he won't get impeached. Uh, and then a couple other things. If he, if he avoids a disastrous war... If he uh, isn't overthrown in a military coup, you know, okay, well, you give me all that. <laughs> okay. yes, I think he has a really good chance of getting reelected. And why? What is his path? Uh, it's really simple, John. So it's, you know me and how I think about uh, politics and issues of social class, and it has to do with the economy and how well it's doing. Unemployment is, is extremely low right now. You know, the economy is basically booming. And for me, the sort of formative experience in American politics was the 19, just because of my age, was the 80s and the 90s, and especially the, the Bill Clinton administration. 
And here you had a guy who people actually have trouble remembering what he did as president, like what he got done. But they do remember it was good times. And they remember that period with a kind of golden haze over it. You know, it was <laughs> universal prosperity. And, uh, you know, it was a magical time almost. And he was massively popular, Bill Clinton was, towards the end of his administration. This is not because of anything he did. It wasn't because of NAFTA or welfare reform or, you know, bank deregulation. These were not particularly popular things. Uh, it was because the economy was booming. I'm not just referring to the stock market. As we all know, there was this incredible stock market bubble in the late 1990s, and it gave this kind of illusion. You know, it was it was a bubble, classic bubble scenario, the NASDAQ, the uh, uh, tech stocks, that kind of thing. But something else happened in the late 1990s, and that is that wages grew for the first and only time since the 1970s. I mean, real wages for average workers grew uh, when adjusted for inflation. And that is something that used to be the country that you and I grew up in, John, that used to be common. That happened every year. Nowadays, that never happens. The Bill Clinton late 1990s was the one period when it, when it in fact, took place. And you think it's possible that wages could go up in the Trump era. How would that happen? The means that used to drive them up back in the 1970s and before are basically off the table. Uh, having strong unions, uh, minimum wage increases, those things are not going to happen. However, wages will go up by themselves if unemployment gets low enough and stays low enough for long enough. And what I mean is, so if the economy runs hot, runs at maximum capacity for a couple years, wages will start to grow all by themselves because employers will be bidding for labor, bidding for workers. And here's the thing, John. You know, I talked to a bunch of economists to write this story. We're almost there right now. There's, I mean, there's lots of signs out there that wages are starting to grow. Unemployment has been low for quite a while. In one county in Wisconsin, uh, unemployment is so low and the job market is so tight that employers are are hiring people straight out of prison. Wow. Uh, you know, yeah, I know. Walmart has actually raised its uh, uh, starting, starting wage, which is like an incredible thing. You know, Walmart, these are the guys that hold the line on wages no matter what happens. There's, there's all sorts of evidence like this. So this is close to happening right now. The question is, what will Trump do to make sure it happens? And Trump is, you know, Trump is, uh, as I said, a buffoon and a, a scoundrel and a national embarrassment. But he does get this. This is something he understands. We know he understands it because he talked about it all the time on the campaign trail and because of the, kind, the sort of choices that he has made as president. For example, the guy that he appointed to chair the Federal Reserve. He did not appoint the kind of guy who's going to jack up interest rates like Paul Volcker back in the 1970s. That's, that appears to be something that's not going to happen. It, it, it would be stupid to try to guess what the Federal Reserve is going to do. But my, uh, my opinion is that he's going to let this thing roll, and Trump wants it to roll. And then you think of all the other things that he has said he wants to do that would just add fuel to the fire. The one thing that would clearly help get wages up in the short term is a 
$3 billion infrastructure plan, which yeah. Trump promised us and now has betrayed that promise with this ridiculous thing about the states and the localities of the private sector is going to have to pay 80 percent of it. We're not, yeah. we're not going to get the infrastructure program that really would work to get wages up. So it That's seems correct. to me the most likely thing is that Trump will do nothing at all to help the oh, working possible. class. But, but, but think about the infrastructure. So it was $3 trillion, by the way. $3 trillion. He's really, he's really dreaming big when he talks about the infrastructure plan. I still think that he will do something along those lines. And he, my, my argument is even if he does it in the crappy way that you just outlined, where, a, where the federal government only does 20% of the spending and they, they slough the rest off onto state and local and private industry, even if you do it that way, it's still going to have a stimulative effect. It's still going to have an effect on employment. And here's the crazy thing, John. We're, we're almost at full employment now. I mean, we're real damn close to full employment right now in America. You do something like that and start just open the uh, federal sluices? <laughs> Can you imagine the effect? You're going to have a labor shortage and there's one other thing that Trump is doing that may indeed help raise wages, something that we're against. But if he staunches immigration, that's going to contribute to rising wages because it's going to limit the labor pool. Yeah, and that's, by the way, a lot of people have talked about the, how strange it is to, um, you know, to want to propose this, uh, you know, this massive infrastructure spending campaign. And, and then at the same time, be cracking down on on immigration and trying to trying to trying to reduce immigration because you're going to need those people or at least that's what Wall Street says. All I'm saying here is that there are any number of things that the president within the president's power. Trade agreements, companies are able still able to offshore stuff. You know, it was a big issue in the last election. It's starting to come up a little bit with his um, the steel tariffs that he announced, but. If Trump does something to even slightly crack down on offshoring, yeah, you're going to see a tighter labor market and you're going to see wages grow. Uh, another thing I mentioned is kind of mini New Deal infrastructure programs here, and they're localized things. Uh, for example, one that's been going on that he could expand if he felt like it, if he was smart, would be uh, in Flint, Michigan. Just go rolling in there with a whole lot of federal money and hire a whole lot of, of, of union plumbers and pipe fitters. <laughs> yes. And I mean, it would be, it would be incredible. You just think about that. He, and, and he would win Michigan next time. So let's talk about what the Democrats can do to stop him. Uh, of course, we have Robert Mueller. We have Stormy Daniels. Do we? Well, need, we think we do. Do we? Do we need anything? <laughs> do we need anything more than the two of them? <laughs> well, I, you know, the, the the I was sort of I was thinking about that this morning when I was reading all the headlines about Stormy Daniels. The period when Bill Clinton was at his most popular is when he was actively being impeached. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yes, yes. Being impeached by Congress for lying about his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Yes. Uh, so I don't know if Stormy Daniels, how that's going to play. I mean, it, 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 you'd think a president having an illicit affair with a, with a porn star, that's pretty bad. Lesser things have undone many other... <laughs> Many another president. I don't know if that's if that's going to hurt him at all. We're going to find out. 
So what should the Democrats do if, if, if we can't count on Stormy Daniels? What can we do? Well, every Democrat that I talk to, and, I, and I've talked to a lot of them, they're counting on Mueller to deliver the midterms for them. Yes. Everybody, I've, everybody I know is. That's just, that's, this is going to happen, and we don't have to do anything. But the, the problem with that way of thinking, and, and I mean, let's be clear, John, this has worked for Democrats before. The famous Watergate class in Congress in 1974 was entirely the doing of Richard Nixon and, and the Watergate scandal. And the Democrats are basically expecting that to happen again. Yes. That actually may take place. I don't want to poo-poo that or, or deny it or anything. It may work out that way. The problem is that it is... Uh, it's, it, it breeds this kind of passiveness among Democrats where they never have to do anything. They never have to do any kind of introspection or think about their own message, you know, except for in a public relations kind of way. They just have to sharpen their presentation and everything is going to be fine and they never have to change anything. They may succeed in the coming midterms, but that's a recipe for disaster in the long term. If it's not Trump getting reelected three years from now, there's going to be another Trump. The Republicans are never going to retreat from what this guy showed them in 2016. They now understand that that's how you beat the Democrats. Everybody gets that. And the next Trump is not going to be so vulgar. He's not going to have affairs with um, porn stars. He's not going to pick fights with NFL players. Think of all the stupid things Trump has done that, that no politician would ever do. The next Trump isn't going to do those things. So you have to be, as the Democrats, you have to be thinking bigger. You have to be thinking, how do I defeat this phenomenon once and for all? Not like, oh, he screwed up. Great, now we get back in. It seems to me where you're going here is that what we really need is a progressive like a Bernie Sanders who would raise the minimum wage, improve schools, bring a Medicare for all, and actually make life affordable and better for ordinary middle and working class people. Yes. You know, I don't want to put any proper names on it, okay. like a certain senator from Vermont. Okay. But <laughs> if, okay, so look, the, the, the bottom line is this. If what I just said about the, the economy booming and wages going up, if that really comes to pass, it's going to be hard to beat Trump in three years, if that really does happen. If that doesn't happen and things continue along the way they have since the 1970s. Wages don't grow. Manufacturing gets offshored. It's a heaven on earth for the wealthy. You know, greater inequality, all the same trends that, that you and I have talked about so many times on this program. If those trends continue, yes, the Democrats have to figure out a way to speak to that. They cannot keep approaching it in the way that they have. And what I, what I mean by that is the sort of the, the, the Clinton and Obama approach where you identify yourself with what I like to call the ideology of the 1990s. The catechism of tech, bank, and globe (laughs) (laughs) that everybody knows is nothing but an excuse for an out-of-touch elite. Assuming that everything just continues the way it has, sooner or later we're going to be right back at the starting point. There's really only one set of successful politics for an age like this one. And it's the kind of politics that we identify with the party of Franklin Roosevelt, the party of Lyndon Johnson, the party of the New Deal. And what Trump has offered is this kind of weird replica of that. But I have always said, John, and I've said it on this program so many times, the real thing 
would beat the fake. The real thing would beat the fake. Tom Frank wrote a fantastic piece about the Trump re-election nightmare and how we can stop it for the new issue of Harper's. Tom, thank you for reminding us about the real thing and the fake. It's, it's always great to have you on the show. John, anytime. It's my pleasure. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Robert Mueller's questions and Donald Trump's answers. Bob Dreyfus will comment. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Now it's time for today's Trump Watch news update. And for that, we turn to Bob Dreyfus. He covers Russiagate for The Nation. He's also a longtime contributor to Rolling Stone. Bob, welcome back. Hey, thanks very much, John. Well, the big news today is not about Russiagate. It's, of course, about Stormy Daniels. Rudy Giuliani, Trump's new attorney, told Sean Hannity on Fox News last night that Trump reimbursed attorney Michael Cohen for that $130,000 payment that Cohen made to Stormy Daniels to keep her from going public before the 2016 election with her story about having had sex with Trump. This contradicts what the president himself said, although Giuliani said it was good news for Trump because the money came from Trump himself and was not campaign funds, and thus, quote, there was no campaign fund violation, close quote. How do you see this news? Um, well, you know, Trump's legal team has blown up and then blown up again. Um, Mark Kasowitz, his first lawyer, resigned. Then in quick succession, uh, John Dowd and, and Ty Cobb um, both resigned, um, apparently in disgust over a client who won't pay attention. So now he's hired a, a mad dog, uh, Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> to be his attorney, somebody who hasn't, from what I understand, tried a case in decades. Um, and so Giuliani is waging a scorched earth PR campaign, but I don't know what, John, I don't know what he's accomplishing in, in the, the legal sense. I mean, he, he maybe is setting the stage for Trump to, you know, blow up the whole Justice Department and the special counsel's office and everything else. Uh, all at once. He said yesterday that Sessions should step in and close it and say enough is enough. That was what Giuliani said about the investigation. And and um, he was on Fox saying that he better not go after Ivanka Trump. They're going after his daughter, he said, quote, unquote. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what Giuliani can accomplish. He seems to be um, um, off the rails, and I wouldn't be surprised to hear that tomorrow he has bitten Robert Mueller and that Mueller has rabies. So I don't know what to say about <laughs> I don't know what to say about about Rudy Giuliani. That's that's the most original. It doesn't really scare me. (laughs) 
that's the most original comment I've heard of in the last uh, 16 hours of of, uh, of punditry uh, on this question. It does seem that there's been a radical transformation in Trump's uh, legal stance since the FBI raided the offices and homes of his attorney, um, Michael Cohen. Uh, I, I think that must have something to do with this, what appears to be a kind of hysterical um, uh, uh, resistance now to to the special pro- special counsel. Yeah, well, I mean, Trump has flown off the handle several times on this, right? He wanted to fire Mueller last summer. Um, the, the raid on Manafort's home, you know, sent him into a paroxysm of rage last August. He's been ranting and raving about firing Mueller off and on ever since, and the, the Cohen thing um, didn't help. But it, it does seem, now they're talking about, you know, we're going to take the gloves off. I read some yeah. saying that. And, and Trump tweeting that I may just have to use my presidential powers to uh, get involved with the Justice Department, where no one can quite figure out what that means. But, but yeah, I mean, he he's you know, itching for a fight, and Mueller let it be known this week that he's ready. He said, we may just, you know, subpoena you. So, so what do you think about that? And um, pretty much every attorney in the country who knows anything about this says that the White House has no legal grounds to uh, resist the subpoena. Um, the Supreme Court would probably back the Justice Department in that case, but, you know, you never know. And so, uh, ultimately, I think uh, Trump is going to have to sit down and take his medicine and answer these dozens of questions that the New York Times said Mueller is interested in asking. Yeah, well, let's look at those questions. The New York Times released a list of questions that Mueller... Uh, wants to ask Trump. Trump said in a tweet that the list of questions included, quote, no questions on collusion, close quote. Is is he right about that? Well, no, he's completely wrong about that. But but before we start to talk about the questions, it's important to point these questions were not leaked by Mueller. Yeah. These questions were uh, based on uh, Mueller's office talking to Trump's lawyers and saying, here's what we are thinking about asking about. The lawyers on Trump's side then took notes and compiled a list of questions. And then some of those questions, we don't know if all of them, yeah. were, were leaked to the New York Times. So what the Times released, I think it was 49 questions, were a presumably edited list of questions that Trump's people wanted us to hear about. Um, But even there, even there, he did ask um, collusion questions, although a lot of the questions that we have been privy to now were relating to obstruction of justice. Um, Why did you fire FBI Director Comey? What are you doing when you talk about firing Mueller, are you going to pardon people? Um, you know, what is, I mean, those kind of those kind of questions, right? What are you? What is the stuff about pressuring sessions? And what about asking those intelligence 
officials to make this all go away when he um, did that last year. So, so that's those are all you know obstruction questions, and and Trump stupidly says you can't obstruct justice without a crime being committed. Well, of course you can. Um, if if the cops or the FBI ask you about something and you you know, hide and run away and obstruct things and destroy documents. It doesn't matter if you're innocent. That's obstruction. So that's one thing. But then they did ask um, about collusion, too, and there was that really interesting question where the among the questions that was released, were released said, um, what do you know about Paul Manafort? That's, you know, Trump's former campaign manager who yes. has been indicted by, by Miller and is facing jail time if he's convicted. What do you know about Manafort reaching out to Russia for help during the campaign? Um, nobody knows quite what that means because we know that Manafort reached out to uh, an oligarch named Oleg Deripaska that he used to work for, um, but that was just you know, do you want a briefing on the campaign? That's what we know. Yeah, we don't know if he if he reached out for help. So maybe Mueller knows things that we don't know. In fact, let's assume that Mueller knows hundreds of things that <laughs> yes. we don't know. Um, so there's a lot of questions about um, that, about his Miss Universe troubles, about um, other people who, you know, were about Kushner trying to set up a back channel with the Russians, about the Seychelles meeting that Eric Prince had. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of questions that have come out that presumably the president would be, to put it mildly, ill-equipped to sit down and answer at length um, in, you know, an extended session with Mueller and his prosecutors. Yeah, what struck me about the, the questions that, that the New York Times uh, uh, published was how how broad they were. They were not, where were you on the night of, you know, December 1st, but what did you know about the Trump Tower meeting with the Russians promising dirt on Hillary, and when did you know it? Um, Giuliani says these questions are a, quote, perjury trap. Uh, are they a perjury trap? Well, you know, that's kind of laughable in a way because all Trump ever does is perjure himself. Unfortunately, <laughs> he hasn't been under oath most of the time. This is the guy who, you know, who lies as a as a question of, of habit. But I think the reason he hasn't asked, you know, in that list of questions, where were you on the night of kind of questions, is they know all that. They've yeah. got yeah. memos and documents and emails and phone call transcripts and interviews with people and wiretaps, as, as Trump would say, and everything else. So they, they know the, the basic facts. What they want is to get the president talking. And so that's why a lot of the questions are phrased with, you know, things like, what were you thinking when you did such and such? Yeah. Or, yeah, that's getting you know, at intent. Intent is a big question on obstruction. Yeah, and just, you know, getting him to ramble on in his Trumpian way. Um you know, which um, will, will, you know, yeah, get him into get him into trouble. And and um, I mean, perjury. I don't know. He, you know, he can claim that he um, misspoke or that he forgot things or whatever. But 
um, I do think they want to get him, you know, on the record just talking. Yeah. Um, and this, by the way, may not be the last interview. I mean, um, this investigation could, believe it or not, it could go well into next year. Mm. Um, and, and so we don't know what the end game is. We don't know when it's supposed to end. Apparently, one of the things that got Ty Cobb in trouble is he kept telling Trump that it would end soon. Yeah, it was going to end at Thanksgiving, and then it was going to end at uh, Christmas, and uh, here here we are in May. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, um, he's got, if... He's got Kyle scheduled throughout the year now for, for Flynn and for Manafort, and of course, these trials, I mean, they keep getting postponed and pushed back, and I'm sure that Mueller is hoping that Flynn and Manafort in particular will flip and that now Michael Cohen, his fixer, will flip and all three of them, you know, start cooperating in order to um, avoid, you know, or lessen their their prison sentences. Well, if, um, if Trump refuses to have a voluntary meeting with Mueller and his team, then, as you say, the next step is for uh, Mueller to subpoena him and the courts have been pretty clear that they have the power uh, to do that. Then Trump has the choice of whether to uh, to plead the Fifth Amendment uh, rather than uh, uh, testify in this so-called perjury trap. Uh, what happens if the president pleads the Fifth Amendment? Well, I mean, we don't know if Mueller needs the president's testimony, really. Yeah. Um, uh, he may have now or will get enough to indict um, people on the inner circle, even beyond Cohen. We don't, I mean, people like Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump and, and others. Um, and, you know, there is some doubt whether lawyers disagree, whether the special counsel can indict the president. Um, he may simply toss that one into the lap of Congress with a report that says, you know, you guys handle this, i.e. decide, you know, if you want to impeach him or not. Um, Another possibility but, that I've heard is that he could make Trump an unindicted co-conspirator. Yeah, well, that's what they did with Nixon. Yeah. Um, Nixon was not indicted uh, in the... Watergate investigation, though many, many of his um, aides were, and some, of course, served time in prison. Um, but Nixon was an unindicted co-conspirator. Um, so uh, I don't know if taking the fifth will, you know, help him, and certainly it would make him look guilty. I mean, Trump himself, you've probably seen, has been on the record in the past, ridiculing people who take the fifth and saying, you know, only guilty people do that and so forth. And, and now he's, um, you know, he may have to eat those words or those tweets um, if, if indeed he ends up in the hot seat, you know. Well, one other thing that hasn't gotten much attention that Rudy Giuliani said last night to Sean Hannity, uh, he said Trump fired FBI Director Comey 
because Comey wouldn't clear him of charges. Doesn't that sound like obstruction of justice to you? Yeah, well, it does. And, and of course, Trump uh, said the same thing. And, and not only that, I mean, Giuliani went further. He said he called Comey a disgraceful liar. And he said he belongs in a jail cell. Um, and, and, you know, this is very personal. I mean, uh, uh, James Comey, the former FBI director, uh, worked for Giuliani. His, um, yeah, his first Giuliani, job. His first job was Giuliani hired him for his first job at, at the well, FBI. Not quite his first job, but it, yes. He, his first he, job in the federal government as a in the FBI, in the Justice yeah, Department. Worked, Giuliani was the U.S. Attorney yeah. in the Southern District of New York, and and Comey came and uh, worked for him. And he talks about that in his book, A Higher Loyalty. He he basically compares Giuliani to a, a media hog and a bully and a show, you know, a showboat um, and so forth. And, and so clearly um, these two guys don't like each other, but now you have, um, you know, Giuliani having to, um, you know, I mean, get his revenge, I guess, trying to get his revenge against Comey, uh, among other things. But he's, he's not, he's not the most, subtle lawyer that Trump could have could have picked, you know, and and um, um, so I don't know. Um, maybe this Emmett Flood guy, who Trump was also apparently trying to bring on to his team, will be more um, calm. I understand he's a cooler-headed kind of guy, um, but but you know Giuliani is the opposite so well giuliani has suggested so has trump that uh that it's 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 unfair and wrong uh to require uh, trump to answer uh hostile questions from the uh press special uh counsel but didn't hillary answer hostile questions from the benghazi committee and didn't she do that in public for like 11 hours um well of course she wasn't uh, president, but also she wasn't being accused of a of a crime. In this case, this is a, a criminal inquiry, so it's a little different. Um, but um, uh, Bill Clinton, to his everlasting regret, did indeed uh, testify to the FBI, and of course, his um, impeachment was built around the notion that he uh, lied to the FBI when he. Um, talked about the Monica Lewinsky saga, and um, and Emmett Flood, the new attorney just hired by to join Trump's legal team, was one of Clinton's attorneys in the impeachment hearings. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, so Giuliani says, "Well, we're not suckers." That's a <laughs> quote unquote oh, statement. Um, and uh, he was asked about whether the president would, you know, be deposed by, and he said. This silly deposition is about a case on which he's supposed to supposedly collude with the Russians, but there's no evidence. So, you know, he's all in on the, the no collusion, no collusion, you're the colluder um, line that, that Trump has, you know, tried to raise, backed by many House Republicans and others, that the real collusion is Hillary Clinton and the Russians or something, and and 
uh, it's it just like his comment about, um, you know, during the debate where, where he said, no puppet, no puppet, you're the puppet. <laughs> back to that, you know. Um, except now it's, you're the colluder. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So Giuliani is, you know, echoing his um, client on this stuff. But um, I, I don't know. He seems like the exact wrong person unless you're going to literally go to, you know, DEFCON 5 or whatever on this and and you want someone who can rally the troops on on Fox News and, you know, with the conservative media when when you're going to war with the whole Justice Department and the FBI and the special counsel and all of the judges, the, the you know, Trump has disparaged judges and the intelligence community and everybody else, all part of this giant um, megalopolis of a conspiracy that has designed, you know, has designed some bringing him down. And, and um, so I guess, you know, that's when you hire the, the mad dog. That's when you hire the mad dog. Bob Dreyfus covers Russiagate for the nation. Read him at thenation.com. Bob, I can hardly wait till, till we get you back on the show again with uh, another another exciting yeah, afternoon of news. Thanks so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Uh, Bob Dreyfus from from the nation. Uh, we just have about one minute left. We uh, I wanted to point out it's... It's time for your Minnesota moment. News from my hometown. The New York Times yesterday had more evidence that Tom Frank is right about wages going up in some places. Uh, our national newspaper of record had a story that began in St. Cloud, Minnesota, where Electrolux announced it was closing its freezer plant next year. And moving it to South Carolina, this was going to cost 900 jobs. Uh, but here's the key paragraph. When Electrolux announced it was leaving, other employers were saying, when can we get at that labor? There's a tug of war going on, the dean of the School of Public Affairs at St. Cloud State told the New York Times. And workers are getting higher wages and performance incentives and bonuses and so on. New York Times says there's other places like St. Cloud, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Employment has doubled or, uh, uh, or tripled in those places since 1970. Tom's Frank point, Tom Frank's point is that wages don't have to go up everywhere for Trump to gain credibility and strength in 2020. He needs some progress in some key states, and Michigan and Wisconsin are obviously keys to his reelection. That's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, Harold Meyerson, talked about full employment. Tom Frank talked about the Trump re-election scenario. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. Uh, coming up at 4 tonight, Jerry, quickly, this is happening. We'll be back next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.